Hello, beautiful people. This is episode eight of Bands and Motivation. I remain your able host, Yamide. <laughs> I can't even complete that. It irks me so much when people say that. I am Yamide. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone, except those of you who will not allow your exes be great. Seriously. Take a cue from Elsa in Frozen. Everybody knows the song, let it go, let it go. What most of you don't know is that the second line in the chorus says, let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. Please, if the person offended you, let God fight for you. I hope you guys had a good week so far. My apologies for not dropping the podcast yesterday. So I usually drop them on Thursdays. But yesterday was just... hmm. It gets as it be, and it be as it gets. If you're not Nigerian in English, that just means yesterday was somehow. Not somehow, somehow. It was just a lot. I was tired. I was restless. I was feeling weighed down. I didn't really sleep well. Like, even the sleep that I had, the quality wasn't, you know, it wasn't. You know, when you wake up and you're like, what's happening? I kind of woke up almost like in a panic. I'm like, where am I? Is this like a, I took a nap and I overslept and it's dark outside? Is it morning? It wasn't good. And I couldn't figure out what was making me feel way down. So I think that was also messing with my head. And of course, it's not something that happens overnight. So it's probably been, I've been doing a lot of stuff this week. And I guess I just got very stressed out. Also cabin fever. I haven't really left my house. I will literally go to the grocery store, come back. I might go see my friend, but that's all still indoors, right? So maybe not getting exposed to sunlight and just being indoors and not getting fresh air or seeing nature. Plus, talking to like friends, family, and everybody complaining about work or not getting a raise at work or losing their job or not getting, you know, a job after preparing for an interview, relationship issues. It just was not a popping week, if I can say that. So when I realized all that, I was talking to my cousin and we were, you know, griping about it together. And we started trying to figure out what can someone do to cheer themselves up? Before COVID, I mean, there were so many things. You could take a walk. Like I said, nature helps. You go outside, fresh air. You go to the movies by yourself. You know, go crazy at a concession stand. Just peace and quiet in the sense that, you know, you go by yourself. It's just so you're watching a movie, something light, something funny, comedy. You could go shopping, go out to a restaurant, maybe go to a theme park, a museum, something. There's something you can do, like an activity you could do to make yourself feel happy. Maybe go get a massage get your nails done. But with COVID still lurking or on patrol, it's just difficult, right? A lot of those options are not even available. And where they are, sometimes it's safe, sometimes it's not safe. Is it really worth the risk? Anyway, so in doing the research to find out what options are available, I saw that, okay, let me rewind. I had seen that AMC movie theaters, which is one of the biggest ones in the United States, I don't know if they're international, was offering 15 cent movies. So of course they've been closed since March. Business has been horrible. They've lost billions of dollars and they're reopening this August saying that they were going to charge only 15 cents for a movie. So many things. It's their 100th anniversary, 100th anniversary and they wanted to do like a throwback theme because when they opened 100 years ago, that's how much movies cost, 15 cents. The average person will be, well, excited, you know, 15 cents. I was angry. I'm like, really? So you could charge 15 cents for a movie, but for whatever reason, you just decide to, I don't know, charge us $10, $12. It's ridiculous. 15 cents, okay, that's ridiculously low, but $12 is ridiculously high for a movie. Come on. Anyway, 
they were offering that as a way to reopen, get people out, to come back, to watch movies. As you all know, a lot of blockbusters and big movies, you know, that were supposed to be released got delayed because of COVID, right? Some of them hadn't finished shooting or finished production and the release dates got, you know, pushed back. Some movies like Trolls and the Scooby-Doo movie did come out, but it came out on like pay-per-view. I think the ones that mostly kids watch came out pay-per-view. So anyway, AMC is going to be offering classics, I think like the Harry Potter series and a bunch of others for people to just come out and watch. They know people are tired of being home. My second question was, hmm, if I'm going to pay 15 cents for a movie and then you guys are still going to take my life savings at the concession stand, because things like popcorn, the candy, the hot dogs, the nachos are ridiculously overpriced. Like a bowl of popcorn, like a small one, and I don't even know if it comes with a drink, probably not. It's like $5 and change. Meanwhile, you can go to the grocery store, buy a whole box that has 12 bags inside for like 2 or $3. I understand they're trying to make money, but seriously, it's a major ripoff. So anyway, that was my second question. Am I going to pay 15 cents for a movie and end up, you know, spending my life savings at the concession stand? But they said they were going to have sales or deals on that. Mind you, 15 cents, the way they advertised it was as if 15 cents was going to be the price for now, but it was just for that one day they were reopening. I believe August 20th is what they said. So if you are in a city or state that AMC has reopened, let us know, let me know if... It was 15 cents. If you've gone to the movies, what you saw, was there social distancing? Let me know. I'm not going, but if you decide to go, <laughs> please give me feedback. So anyway, that option wasn't available and we really couldn't come up with anything. No. Oh, also, by the way, Walmart is doing driving theaters. So in select Walmarts, there will be driving theaters. You just drive up to the place, watch the movie from your car. All you need is, I guess, a working radio. They will tell you what station to tune it to. You can bring your own snacks, of course. But if you want to order snacks from Walmart, you can do a pickup where you don't have to come out of your car. They bring it to the car. So that would be fun and interesting. So that was another option. When I searched, though, it's sold out in the state of Texas. So I don't know how people found out because I didn't. Never heard about it before that day. How did I even find out that day? I think they sent some kind of announcement or it was on the news or something. I don't know if it's people who work there who already knew it was going to happen and bought out all the tickets for their family and friends. It's free, by the way. The only thing was you had to register because obviously there's only so many cars that can fit in. So it's sold out in my state, but in your state, it might not be. So if you have children, if you have nieces and nephews, if you just want to try something different, that's an option. Look, look it up online. If it works out for you, let me know how it went. But apparently that's not an option for me. Anyway, guys, on this episode, we will be talking about Jill Biden. So there's supposed to be an expose on Jill Biden coming out. You can probably already guess from my exceptions to my greetings what this is going to be about. But that is the main story. As usual, we'll have a COVID-related story or report. And then something about the black struggle in America because it seeps into every facet of life. Anyway, COVID. Guys, upon all the stress of COVID, trying to avoid COVID, trying to be safe, lockdown, you know, I was assuming, maybe because I'm naive, that this was a problem or a fear that the entire world was sharing. You know, everybody's trying to think of how to be safe, how to stay home, how to avoid COVID. But a doctor was saying in an interview that coronavirus is a poor person's virus. At first, I was like, what in the world? But when I thought about it, he's right. And then I thought, wait, I'm poor. 
that wasn't a good feeling. And I don't even know if that's what made me have a bad week. But if you're worried about coronavirus, catching the coronavirus, being exposed to the coronavirus, apparently you are poor. Because the super rich in America are still living life like nothing happened. They're throwing parties, they're traveling around, literally not bothered, right? Also, remember that if you have more money, you have access and connections to getting tested as much as possible. They even have a 15-minute rapid COVID-19 test. Obviously, it's expensive and whatnot, not easily reachable or, or, you know, you can't easily have access to it. But these people who have so much money, that's what they're doing and they're just moving on with their lives. So they're still throwing parties. They're still, you know, buying homes. They're still going on their vacation summer. Of course, they can afford to rent out, you know, like an entire island or go to some private place that is a safe zone. They have private jets. If they don't have one, they can rent one. Now, this is what really blew my mind. A private jet company was saying that inquiries for private jets have skyrocketed up to 195 not up to, up by, sorry, 195%. That's almost triple. Can you guys just imagine that in a pandemic where people are losing their jobs, people are worried about unemployment, losing their homes, kids can't go to school, small businesses are suffering. People are hungry for private jets because obviously they don't want to travel commercial, even if they can get in first class. They don't even want to take that risk, take that chance. They want it to just be them, their family, their, you know, inner caucus or their staff. And that's it. They're going about, oh, birthday trip, just, you know, relax your mind trip. It really was mind blowing. And it just reminds me of the total gap between everyday people, you know, people who have a regular job, working nine to five, you're hustling to, you know, pay your bills, keep things up and you're super rich. So when you think of poor or people who are suffering, you probably don't think about yourself, but guys, apparently we are poor because these are actual fears that I have. I don't want to go out. I don't want to be in public for so long. I don't want to get on a plane. But these people are not bothered. The other day, there was a picture of Mark Zuckerberg. He and his family went to Hawaii on vacation, and he bought this new $12,000 electric surfboard, and he's testing it out. And I'm like, wow. I mean, they work for their money, so I'm not bitter about them spending it. It's just a reality check, and it's not a cute one. So, hustle. That's just the bottom line. Hustle so that... You will be in a position in life where you can, one, do whatever you want, whenever you want, not really be affected by what's happening in the world. Two, and more importantly for me, is help people. Because when you have that much money, I have that much, you know, resources and access to stuff. That's why a lot of them are philanthropists, because you have so much you can help, you can make an impact in people's lives. So, guys, host two. Now, the black struggle of this week. There's something called widomatic. <laughs> guys, honestly... This America is just, it's draining for black people, it's draining. So anyway, there's a manufacturing company called Anna and they're based in Massachusetts. So if you're not in America, you might not know, you know, when you think of Massachusetts, but Boston is in Massachusetts. So you probably heard of Boston. So anyway, the company is based in Massachusetts and they are rolling out marijuana vending machines. So they've rolled out some in Massachusetts. They've rolled out some in Colorado. And if you're anything about Colorado, it's almost like the capital of marijuana, weed, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And the reason for this is, you know, contactless option, COVID and everything happening. People don't necessarily want to interact or come in and talk to somebody that has been preventing some people from going to buy their marijuana. Interesting, innovative, you know, for now, positive. 
So they have different types of marijuana products, the actual flower or the buds, the edible ones. You know, people make um, weed gummies, people make um, weed brownies, you know, all those other stuff. And then they have the vape oils. So just the oils that people use, you know, for massages and I don't know whatever else they do with the oils. Anyway, so once again, more positive stuff. Now this vending machine, this marijuana vending machine can dispense up to 2000 products. So it does carry a lot of stuff. All you need to do is show your ID, check in. You could even book on the app. So Anna has an app. You can pre-order. And then when you get there, you can pay with cash or your card. Now, this is, I mean, it sounds so, oh my goodness, this is the future. This is amazing. And I saw a picture of the machine. And it's not those random, you know, the normal vending machines for snacks that you put your money and they're just a small screen that you press the number. A lot of times your snack gets stuck. Then you start hitting the machine like a crazy person over a dollar snack. People in the public are looking at you. This is not that kind of machine. This is super sophisticated. Like if you've ever gone to like an Amazon locker to pick something up, you know, touch screen, pictures, options, it really is a beauty to look at. Now, what is my gripe? Why am I calling black people into this? The guy who started the Anna business and came up with this whole idea of Widomatic is a 30, 31 year old white guy called Matt Frost. And I think that in itself for me is just a wow, because no lie, white guys keep winning. They are the epitome of, I mean, when God was creating the world, that's the way America sees them. He was thinking about them. Now, if you know anything about the history of marijuana or weed and black people, it is not a great history, right? Tons of black people are in prison for marijuana-related offenses, you know, selling marijuana, using marijuana. For the longest time, it was illegal all over the United States. Now, I think about 11 states have made it legal. And then about 26 states have tried to decriminalize it. So even if they do catch you with it, it's not, you know, a criminal offense, all of that. But black people are the ones who suffer anything marijuana related that is negative. Now, let me first say that 52% of all drug arrests in the United States are for marijuana. So of course that's more than half, meaning it's a big deal. And these are not like some kingpin who is just has this farm where they are growing all this marijuana. No, these are just actual people on the road with small amounts of pot or weed, whatever you want to call it. Over 7 million people in the last 10 years were busted for having marijuana, right? So meaning Every 37 seconds, somebody was arrested for having marijuana. Now, the age range of that was 18 to 25 year old. So people in their prime, right? You finish secondary school, high school. So university age, just after university. Now, this is a fact. Black and white people use marijuana at the same rate. So it's not like, oh, black people use weed more or what. No, they use it at the exact same rate. But black people are 3.64 times, that's almost four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people. Remember that isms at the same rate, but black people are almost four times more likely to be arrested for using marijuana. Now, in states like Iowa, Washington, D.C., Minnesota, where George Floyd was killed, Illinois, where Chicago is, black people are even at a higher risk of or have a higher chance of being arrested for marijuana. Seven and a half to eight and a half times a white person. Like a black person is seven and a half to eight and a half times more likely to be arrested for having marijuana, weed, pot, whatever I want to call it on them, using it than a white. 
mind you, like I said, these are not kingpins, like they're trafficking it, they're selling, they have this, you know, huge, no, this is just possession. When you get arrested for using marijuana or whatever, drug bust as they call it, you lose your job, right? And you lose entitlement to public benefits. So people who get like housing assistance, um, aid from the government to leave, to go to school, whatever else, you lose the right to have that. You lose that benefit because you were arrested for using marijuana. So it's not, it's not a joke. It's not a small thing where you're like, oh, it's just marijuana. It's not a big deal. No. It goes on their record. It taints it. It follows them for life. Question is why? Why has the United States or the police or whoever decided that black people should be the people who suffer the brunt of you know, using marijuana. It was such a condemned thing before. People frowned upon it. Wow, you know, weed. Wow, marijuana. Ew, disgusting. And people were being put in jail in record numbers. It wasn't a joke. People were getting years in jail for possession of marijuana. I think the minimum sentence is 29 months for possession of marijuana, which is what? Two and a half? That's two and a half years, really. And obviously when you come out, it's on your record. Now, why it's not a small deal is that arrest records are public. Like you can look up somebody's name or go to their county jail or whatever, the justice system, and you can see that they were arrested when they were arrested, what they were arrested for. So that means that if you apply for a job, your employer can go on the internet, your landlord, a school you're applying to, a credit agency, say you want to buy a house or a car or whatever, even the bank can go online and see that, huh, Jane Doe, was arrested at social time for, you know, marijuana possession. And when you see marijuana possession, you think of something big like, oh, this person is a, you know, drug dealer, kingpin. Literally could be a small amount of marijuana on your person and this becomes a financial aid. Even if you said, okay, I want to, you know, make my life better. I want to go to school. I want to apply for government aid. Zero. Child custody cases, it can come up. That information is available for them to say, oh, this person, you know, use marijuana. I don't think. It's so mind-blowing that this thing can have such an adverse effect. It was frowned upon so much. It was such a big deal. And yet now all of a sudden, what people have realized, you know what? We will make a lot of money from marijuana. So therefore, let's make it legal. So now the thing that there are people in jail for life, some 40 years, some 20 years, literally your entire life. Imagine going to jail at 18 or 20 and being in jail till you're 40, 50 because of marijuana. And of course, some of them are repeat offenders, right? So the more you repeat the offense, the higher the sentence. But now, why people are making money from that exact same thing? Like, they've made it cool. If you went to college in America, any college campus in America, the way these white kids smoke weed, it's so recreational. You can see even the ones in med school and law school. And with black people, I feel like there's this, if I'm supposed to be a prima proper black person or an educated black person, that's not what I want to be associated with. These people don't care. There's so many housewives in, you know, super posh neighborhoods whose husbands are millionaires and billionaires. That's their thing. They have someone that deals weed to them. They smoke weed. They get high. They, you know, used to cook. They, you know, whatever they do with it. Forget being medicinal. So it's such a thing that's not a taboo for them. It's a way to, you know, decompress. Let them talk about the guys on Wall Street and other high-profile people who use weed as if it's, you know, mint herb in their tea. They even use stronger drugs. I mean. These people don't play with their weed, don't play with so many different kinds of drugs, recreational or not. Adderall, that's supposed to be for people who have, you know, like attention deficit disorder. Kids in college are popping it for fun just to get, you know, some kind of kick or to be in overdrive. But somehow, 
when they do it, it's okay, it's harmless, it's little kids just doing what little kids do. When a black person does it, there's that whole, <laughs> here they come again, these gangsters, these good-for-nothing people who have no life and only spend their time doing weed and doing drugs. So now you have all these black people in jail because that was their offense. Not violent offense, not a criminal offense. I mean, it was a criminal offense, sorry, but it wasn't a violent offense. It's not even an offense that you say, okay, if somebody was dealing like heroin or crack, where people can get high, people can sell to kids, they can overdose, they can die. That's not the case with marijuana. People are not dying from it. People are not overdosing on it. People are not saying, hey. So really, why are you putting these people in jail for such a long time? Yes, they broke the law. Yes, they should be punished. But shouldn't marijuana be on the list of, okay, shouldn't be maybe on your record, should be taken off, or shouldn't be something that companies can access or employment agencies can access or schools or banks. That should be something that's taken off the record. Now that this thing is legal in many places and why people are making a killing from it, literally from January this year to July, six months, $239 million in profits from people or from, you know, legal marijuana sales. Are you kidding me? Really? And people are in jail because they were doing the same thing, but they were doing it quote and unquote ahead of the time. Why don't they go back and revisit these things and look at it and say, hey, this punishment was too harsh. This person's life should not be wasted. Especially now that we've come around to the idea of marijuana is not horrible, marijuana is not bad. In fact, it's fun, it's cool, it's hip. There will never be a day, and we all know this, that murder will become okay or legalized. So this is not the same as saying, oh, should we just let all prisoners go free? No, because there are things that murder, if you rape somebody, if you, you know, so many other things that you do that no matter how you look at it, it will never be acceptable. It will never become legal. This is a totally different ballgame. They were doing something that people are doing now and making so much money out of. The state of Illinois, where Chicago um, is in, said that from January to June, half of this year, Taxes, right? Because obviously states will tax you for whatever business you're doing. The amount of money they made in taxes just from dispensaries where people can go and buy recreational marijuana, $52 million. Are you serious? So how much did the people who are selling the marijuana actually make that the government was able to get $52 million in taxes? So clearly, it's a big business. It's a budding business. It's a no-brainer. Of course, you guys all know that most of the people, not most, pretty much almost all the Top people in the marijuana industry and business CEOs, people who have, you know, investments and everything are white men. So white men are now profiting from something that black men were incarcerated for, their lives were ruined for, they're just in jail wallowing. I think there needs to, I'm not a lawyer, right? And I don't know what the legal implications are. But from a lay person's perspective, something needs to be done. Those sentences need to be reduced. Those people need to be released. They need to be given a second chance at life. I don't think it's fair that People are wallowing in jail because Trayvon, you know, on the corner had some weed on him. Yet Matt Frost is here now, a millionaire, probably soon be a billionaire at the age of 30 or 31 because as a white guy, he had access to capital, he had access to connections. A lot of us things too is lobbying, right? You have to lobby the government. They don't just say, oh, because it's legal now, here it's free. No, there's a lot of lobbying that goes on behind the scenes. There's tit for tat. What are they getting? What are they... So you need connections, you need capital, you need access to those people and those things, which, of course, white people have because it's their parents, friends, and their people who went to their university, and they were in the same frat, and so on and so forth, that black people don't have. Black people don't have access to those kind of resources and connections. So I feel like it's really unfair. I, I mean, it's just unfair. I'm not a, oh, I'm a weed person, or I'm big on marijuana, or I've never smoked it before, I've never, but just the injustice for me is what is annoying, right? that this is something that black people 
even till today, even in places where it has become legal, people are still arrested for it, right? Maybe they say you have over the quantity you were supposed to have. Another one that the police do is states that have a border. So maybe I'm in the state of Texas and it's allowed in Texas, which is not. And maybe the next state to me is New Mexico. And in New Mexico, it's allowed, right? Once again, it's not. But say that was the case. The police people always wait at the border because they know that people go to that state to go get, you know, weed because it's allowed there. They'll wait at the border so when you're coming back, they will stop you and they will search you. If they find any remnant of it, if they're smelling it on your breath, if they're, they will arrest you. So, of course, it's also a tactic, ways for them to make money, incarcerate more people. And as usual, more black people are probably lower income. They cannot afford to get good representation or get a good lawyer or get the charges dropped. They go to jail. On the other hand, higher number of white people that that happens to, even right there, they are calling their dad, calling their mom, calling their uncle who is a sheriff, calling this person who is a commissioner, calling this person who is a state councilman, and those charges get dropped. These people can even get, I mean, sometimes murder charges dropped. But black people are languishing in jail. I don't know what I say is a good or bad thing. Black people are not even the biggest target of this whole drug, you know, marijuana thing. It's Hispanic people. You believe that 60% of people in jail for marijuana um, convictions or charges are Hispanic people. That's a different, totally different story. So between black people and Hispanic people, very few white people, I think said only about 10% of white people are in jail for that. Mind you, we've already established at the beginning of this conversation that both black and white people use marijuana at the same rate. Honestly, <laughs> I don't know what you guys think about it. Do you guys think, well, serves them right, they broke the law, they should be there? If you went to school in America, I don't know how it is in other countries. They, I had a roommate in college. White girl, was barely, wasn't even up to 21, came from a good home. Her dad was like a doctor and some big person. I don't know if he had a hospital, what he had, ridiculous amounts of money. Parents had only two children. And when I say wealthy, I mean wealthy, like she had a trust fund that had a million dollars in it. And when she turned 30, she'll be able to access it, that kind of wealthy. And she had epileptic seizures like once in a while. So she had different medications and I know for sure they didn't prescribe weed or whatever. So her she didn't this guy who was just, God forgive me, good for nothing, just faffing about, mooching of her. And that is all these people would do. I kid you not. I come up from class in the afternoon, everywhere smelling of weed. In the evening, they have people over, they're just passing bongs around. Literally, that was just their thing. They were stoned almost always. It was just fun. It was interesting. It was. Now, can you imagine that girl? Obviously, never got arrested by police. Obviously, she used to go to hospital a lot because she used to have seizures and different stuff. No hospital person called police come and arrest her. I said, Oh, we found this in her system, or she smelled of this, or she told us she uses that. Nothing. Living her life, I bet you that if that girl ever even got arrested by a mistake or something, it would take a phone call to her dad and that thing will be squashed, forgotten, it never happened. So this disparity is not them say, them say, or people said, or he said, she said. It's seeing it, seeing what happens, seeing how this thing actually is playing out in the lives of people, you know? So I don't know. I don't know what you guys think. I don't know how you guys feel about this matter. Let me know, you know. I'll put up a post on Instagram, leave a comment. A lot of times people send me messages privately to discuss something that I've talked about on the podcast, but I feel like it would be nice if we could do something interactive so other people can see what you say and piggyback on it, have conversations. I know some people have said Instagram really won't be a good platform for that kind of back and forth, you know. I don't know what that option there is. Maybe YouTube. I know some people have their YouTube actually, sorry, have their podcast 
recorded. So while they're recording, you know, obviously audio, they also do video and put it on YouTube. So I don't know if that's a better platform. What do you guys think? Would you be more interactive on YouTube? If I started putting the podcast as a video on YouTube, would you respond? Would you engage? Would you leave comments? Would you watch? Let me know on that issue, on that matter. Now, the Joe Biden expose. This is why I was singing, let it go, let it go. Joe Biden has an ex-husband. Okay, if you don't know who Joe Biden is, sorry, let me go back. Joe Biden is married to Joe Biden, who is now the Democratic nominee for president. You know, so he'll be running against Donald Trump in November for president. Now, Joe Biden was married before. Joe Biden was married before. Joe Biden was married to a man called Billy Stevenson. Never heard about him. I have no idea who he is. Anyway. And they were married in 1970. So a whole 50 years ago, guys. She was 19, he was 22. So, of course, they were really young, but obviously back in the day, people were getting married really young. The marriage only lasted for five years, so 1970 to 1975. And then Jill and Joe Biden got married in 1977, so two years after her marriage ended. Now, if you look up the story of Joe Biden and Joe Biden, how they met, he said he saw her on a billboard, he told his brother, wow, this looks like somebody I would like to date or talk to. The brother said, oh, really, I know who she is, I can, you know, get in touch with her. Gave Joe Biden her number. He called her. They went on a date. Blah, 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 blah. Got married, you know. So Joe Biden was married before. He had two sons and a daughter. Unfortunately, when the first time he was ever running for Senate, what was it? Sorry, so running for councilman. It wasn't a Senate. Running for councilman. His wife, that was the first time he got into politics. His wife and his daughter were hit by a truck and unfortunately they died. So he had a one year old daughter and his wife died. So that's how his first wife, you know, that's how his first marriage ended. So it was just him and he had two little boys. Um, Hunter and Bo Biden, one is late now, died in 2015, when um, he and Joe now got together and got married. So that's the story we know, you know, wholesome, wow, you know, a widower, got married again, happily ever after, his career is, you know, going forward, she's teaching, you know, in public school, and, you know, everything nice, everything sweet, everything stew. Now, Joe Biden is the Democratic nominee for president, you know, highest office in in the world, really, because if you're the president of America, that is the highest office in the world. You know, America is supposed to be the world's superpower. But Bele people, the ex-husband now is coming out to say he's going to write an expose and that this is not the wholesome story that they have been portraying. So pretty much that Joe Biden and his wife have been lying to us for the past 40-something years that he and his wife were still together and she and Joe Biden started having an affair and that's what broke up his marriage. Hmm. Okay, something salacious. Totally different <laughs> from the story that she and Joe Biden are sharing. And it's crazy because there's such a big disparity, right, even as to when they met. So the husband is saying that he was in politics. He and um, Jill, who was his wife at the time, worked on Joe Biden's first campaign. That's how they met in 1972. So two years after they were married, so his wife was, what, 21? They worked on his campaign. And he says that he even donated, like, almost $11,000 in cash to the campaign. You know, he was doing well, had a business or whatever. He apparently is into live music. So he had a, I don't think it's a club. I guess I'll call it a club and had live music. So a lot of rock and roll stars used to go there. And this was in Delaware. I think it was near the University of Delaware. So of course he had students and all kinds of people. So he had money anyway. So he said that they were working on the campaign and that's how they met Joe Biden. And they all became friendly and became familiar. So they were all friends, you know, when his wife died. And Jill would go over to help, you know, help Joe Biden with the kids. Because think, remember this, he's lost his wife. He's lost his little daughter. He's just running for office. So elections had happened. He had won, like barely won. And in between, you know, winning the elections and going into office. So 
in America, for example, let's say the presidential elections are held in November, right? But the new president is not sworn in until January. So, of course, that time frame. So it was something like that where in that time frame, his wife had now died in this accident. So, of course, it was a loss. You're going into office. He was still young. I think he was, what, 29 or something. He's lost his wife and his child. He has two other small boys. He needed all the help he could get. So Joe Biden was going over, helping, you know, babysitting the kids, all of that, all of that. And Bruce Springsteen, who was such a big deal at the time, was supposed to be playing at his club. That's um, Joe Biden's husband's club. And of course, the husband was a big deal. People were coming from different states around. And Joe Biden was like, well, I mean, unfortunately, I'm not going to be going with you because I'm going to look after Joe's kids. So in his mind, he's like, well, this is supposed to be a big deal, right? Bruce Springsteen is such a thing, obviously supporting your husband. So that's when he started suspecting hmm, something for sure, for sure is off. And then he claims that one of Joe Biden's best friends came and told him, you know what? Jill is getting too close to this Joe Biden guy. Something is up. You, be, you know, should be careful. So he was surprised that she came. Let me just stop there and say, I'm sorry, but that's not her best friend. There's no best friend you have that will go to your husband and go tell your husband, well, I think people are getting close. If someone is really your best friend, they should come to you and say, what is happening? You have a husband. Why are you with this person? Blah, blah, blah. And if they're really your best friend, you will tell them the truth. This is happening or this is not happening. And if it is happening as your best friend, they should tell you what you're doing is crap. You are a married woman. You, should, you know what I mean? Not going to your husband to say, hmm, I'm suspecting your wife. That doesn't make any sense. How are you her best friend? And unless you actually did want her marriage to crash or you just wanted to cause trouble. No. So that idea of it was her best friend. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was a hater. Anyway, so he put that in his back pocket, like, okay, something is off. Let me be watching. A few months later, he was at work and someone came and said, hey, do you own a brown Corvette? He said, yeah, that's my wife's car. And the guy said, well, there was a fender bender. They bumped into me. They were supposed to fix my bumper, exchange information, never heard from them. You know, they're not answering me. I need my car fixed. So the husband or whatever, Joe Biden's husband goes, sorry, who are the they or them? Obviously, it's his wife's car. He wasn't in the car. And he said, oh, surprisingly, Senator Biden was driving. So I think for him, he said that was all the confirmation he needed. Go home, told Jill to leave, you know, which she did. She packed out, you know, her dad was begging him, you know, let's work this out. Let's, you know, give this a second chance. You guys are still young. He said he wasn't interested because he had considered Joe Biden a friend at that time. And, you know, it was painful for him, like the betrayal. He's not blaming his wife because he claims, or Jill at the time, because he claims... Jill is such a lovely person. Anybody who falls in love, you know, anybody who meets her will fall in love with her. So he's not surprised that, you know, Joe Biden fell in love with her, but he would have thought because this guy was supposed to be his friend, he had donated and worked on his campaign. He shouldn't have done that. That is his story. This is a far cry now because that means they met in 1972. They were friends for those, you know, two, three years into, before, you know, 1975, where she and her husband now split. She was taking care of his children. She was hanging out with him. People were seeing them together. They knew each other and they knew each other well. Far cry from the version that Joe Biden and his wife are telling, which is 1975, she was already divorced. He saw her on a billboard. His brother, you know, gave him her number. He called her, asked her out on a date. I'm sorry, what? So somebody is either, one of those people is a really good liar because these stories, nothing about them match, not the timeline, not how they met absolutely nothing. So please, <laughs> who is lying? Is her ex-husband lying, me thinks, or are Jill and Joe Biden lying? And I understand, of course, because maybe they're in public eye, they want the story to be more presentable or the packaging to be better. I have so many questions. Number one, 
These people have been in the public eye. Obviously, he was VP under Obama for eight years. Why didn't the story come out? Why didn't this guy come out then and say, oh, it's a lie. This is not how these people met. Silence. Nothing. We haven't heard this version of the story. People who knew them when they were younger, family members, friends, haters, people that were jealous that she's now becoming, you know, popular or becoming second lady. How come nobody came out and said it? How come there wasn't any expose? How come, how come, how come? Literally, why is it now that these people are running for president and she's supposed to be first lady that the ex-husband all of a sudden came out and wants to start to do, you know, I'm writing a story. And of course, people are already telling him, dude, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I think this annoyed me because he says, oh, I don't want to harm Jill's chances of, you know, becoming first lady. I actually think she'll make an excellent first lady. I'm sorry. Are you mentally, did you bump your head somewhere? Why are you doing this? What's your point? Like, you're literally digging stuff up from 50 years. Are you serious? 50 whole years ago, you're still carrying this thing in your heart. And if he was single the whole time, I would understand his gripe. No, he's remarried. Like, he has a wife that he got married to not long after that, that he's been with all this time. Which he claims, you know, my wife is the greatest thing in my life. I'm even glad for the divorce because if Jill and I didn't divorce, I would never have met my new wife, Linda. Why are you disrespecting Linda? Because to me, that's what it is. You are bent on writing a book about your ex-wife and what she did to you. And you have somebody better. You claim you're happy the divorce happened because you got to meet the better woman. Why don't you just face your future? Like, what do you really hope to achieve? Because he's claiming, oh, I'm just writing a book about my life. I'm sorry, you're not important enough to be trying to write some quote-unquote autobiography. I don't think there are people out there who are like, oh my goodness, I wonder how this guy lived his life. I'm so intrigued. I want to know a lot about him. They are not. Nobody cares, sir. We don't want to know. And he's saying, you know, the book is ready to go. Something that even annoyed me. This guy had the audacity to say he's not sharing the title. He's keeping it close to his chest. My brother, keep the entire story inside your chest. Not even close. Inside. Respect yourself. Respect this woman. Respect your new wife. Respect the American people. We are not interested. We do not want to know. He's saying now, well, I haven't decided if I'm going to publish the book before the elections or after. Clearly, you're already trying to cause some damage. You're bringing it out now, like at this crucial, critical time. This is August. Election is in less than three months, November 3rd. Why, if, why are you bringing it out? Either you publish the book or not. If you do publish the book, let's know you publish the book. If you're not publishing the book, don't publish the book. Keep quiet. If you've not decided... In fact, in all situations, keep quiet. If you're going to publish a book, publish it and just let us know the book is out. I feel this guy just wants a thing where when you look it up, you know, you obviously if you even check her on Wikipedia, his name is there that that's who she married. So I don't know if he's just trying to drum up new interests or just trying to, you know, just drop nuggets of hmm, let people wonder or think. You've already said all this stuff. So really, what are you really still hiding? And he's saying, well, you know, the book is about my life. It's not necessarily focused on Jill. In fact, the book is not about her, you know. The book is 300 pages and she only appears in, you know, like 80 of the pages. Uh, sir, <laughs> that's a quarter of the book. Literally an entire quarter of the book is dedicated to this woman. I said the book is not about her. Sorry, what's the remaining three quarter about? It doesn't make any sense, really. Let it go. It's in the past. It has happened. It, no, even if this really was the case, that this is how the story happened. She cheated on you. Once again, just because she was in an accident and Joe Biden was driving, yes, it might look bad, it might look suspicious. That doesn't equal they were cheating or having an affair. You obviously knew that they were hanging out. You obviously knew that she was spending time with him, taking care of his kids. So is it absurd that they would have been in a car together? No. So unless he's just trying to drop this little nugget so that we all want to know the real story and buy the book, I don't know. Claims the book is already written and 
literally once he decides to do this thing, he can have 30,000 copies printed in 10 days. To me, these are all just subtle threats. I feel like this guy is just threatening, looking for attention, maybe wants you to reach out and say something or wants the Bidens to acknowledge him. Me really hopes they don't. What is also funny is that when Jill wrote her own autobiography, Where the Light Enters, she also mentioned the guy because, of course, you can't talk about your life and not talk about what happened. It wasn't any, oh, I'm dedicating 80 pages to you. It was, you know, a quick mention. And she says that um, they were young. And for her, the reason why the thing didn't work is they grew apart. She, they got married in February, so she was still 18. And then in June of that year, she turned 19. So she was like, we were young. Life was happening. She was now getting more involved in politics and being on campaigns. He had opened his club and, you know, celebrities. And of course, think about it. Think about even any clubs, you know. There's a kind of life that comes with having a club. You know, there are people around you. There are women, drugs, alcohol, celebrities. I'm not saying that Jill's first husband was involved in any of these things, but that is what comes with the territory, celebrities, you know, all of that. That could have contributed to whatever caused this, right? Just that life and it not being what Jill wanted or wanted to be involved in. Maybe the husband obviously being out at night, being at his club, handling everything else that was going on. That is enough to put pressure on a marriage. So she didn't go into detail, but she just said, we're getting older. We're going in different directions. It didn't take long for us to realize we didn't really have much in common. The thing didn't work. And she claims that she really tried to make the marriage work and it just didn't work and she let it go. So she said that the idea she had, you know, a lot of people get married or most people and you want it to be forever and you have this fairy tale. For many people, that's not the reality. So what she hoped would happen is really not what it was. And she said when she came to that realization, she really just let the whole thing go. But when she talks about him in her book, she said, you know, he was a really nice guy. He was, you know, an entrepreneur. He was hardworking, blase, blase, blah. Nothing bad, nothing negative. My guy, I don't know why he wants to now ruin this woman's life. He had a near-death experience. In 2018, he had a heart attack on the streets of Manhattan, almost died. They, he said he died for six minutes, apparently, and they resuscitated him. Now he's claiming that the reason why God allowed him to leave is to come and share this his story. I'm sorry, but no, I don't think that God wanted him to come and tear Joe Biden down or cloud, cast any kind of cloud over she and her husband, make them look bad, potentially hurt their chances of winning the election. So please don't add God into this. Thank you and God bless sir. Anyway, what do you guys think? Like I said, I think it's unnecessary. Too much time has passed. He really doesn't have any point to make. Let's assume she did make that mistake when she was, well, when they divorced, she was still 23, 24. Why don't you let it go? Like, the woman is in her 60s now. So much has happened. Water under the bridge. That's my opinion. What do you guys think? Is it, I mean, she did something wrong. She deserves to be punished. Is it a case of, guy, free this matter now. Like, you're looking desperate and ridiculous. And from reading that the guy had his own history and had money and had, I don't think it's a money grab. I don't think it's a, oh, pay me off. I think it's really just an attention thing. Anyway, guys, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to join the BAM fam on Instagram at Bands and Motivation. Please, please, please share the podcast so we can grow this BAM nation. Let me know what you think. Drop your opinion. Drop your comments under the post on Instagram. As I announced last week, my period poverty project is up and running. There's so much information available on the website. There's a dedicated page on Instagram called at your change for change. 
if you go on the Bounce and Motivation page, there are links. You can access the website. You can see what we're doing. You can see ways that you can get involved. Guys, please donate, 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 and share with your friends, your family, your neighbors, church members, everybody on your social media platform. We need to get the word out. We need to get the momentum going. Even if it's just a dollar. If a thousand people donate one dollar, that's a thousand dollars. So yes, it makes a difference. Don't think your money is too small. Don't think your donation doesn't count. It does. Also, please, if you know any lawyers, a divorce lawyer or a criminal lawyer that will be interested in being interviewed for the purpose of this podcast, please let me know. I had so much feedback on the prenup um, episode where I talked about prenup. There's so much information. It would be nice to talk to somebody who actually knows what the law says and how it works out. And that would be a fun discussion to have. Also talking about things like this whole weed and people going to jail for marijuana. What would it look like getting them out, releasing their sentences? That would be a good conversation to have with a professional. That's why I asked about a criminal lawyer. Also, if you know an illustrator, please guys, not stick figures. If it's that one, I can do stick figures by myself. If you know an illustrator, please let me know. Reach out to me. Send me an email motivation at gmail.com or dm me on instagram at motivation. thank you so much for listening be kind be safe be careful and i'm begging you please behave until next week bye